I want to share with you today one of my treasures. It's a little bit delicate, and I don't take it out of the house very often. This is my copy of The Living Oracles. It is the first American translation of the Bible. It was translated by Americans for Americans. It's New Testament only. It was originally published in 1826. It was the work of three translators working with the edits and the notes of Alexander Campbell. And what I have here is the fourth edition. And this was published in 1835. Would you think about that just a moment? 1835, the congregation that meets here in Kansas was not formed until 1856. So this is several years older than this church. It's even older than some of our members that are still here today. Uh, this particular volume survived the Civil War. I've often wondered what words came from this as preachers who had it before me prepared their lessons. It survived the Spanish-American War. It survived both world wars and several other wars. It also barely survived a bookworm invasion, as you can see from the hole here on the top. It's fragile, and yet the words within it are still strong, and those words will stand forever. Alexander Campbell, whom I introduced you to last week, was one of the founders of the Restoration Movement, which is a part of our church's heritage. And Campbell believed that as language changed and as translation skills improved, that the Bible ought to be translated and revised again and again. He believed it was always necessary for the Bible to be in the current language of the people with the most accurate translation. In fact, he felt that to elevate one translation above all others, no matter what translation it was, even if it was his own translation, to elevate one translation above all others would make us idolaters of the word. And instead, it needed to be fresh, it needed to be accessible and understandable to everyone. Now, last week I shared with you one of the early slogans of the Christian church. No book but the Bible, no creed but Christ, and no law but love. That, that set us apart in those days. That was something that was very unusual. We appealed to the Bible alone as our authority in all, all matters of faith and practice. There was no other guide for the Christian church. There continues to be no other guide. No other creed, no other source of authority was appealed to. And that earned us a nickname because back in those early days, those early 1800s, uh, one of the things that people loved to do, believe it or not, was debate. <laughs> and they would get together for these big debates and different beliefs, uh, different preachers from different areas would get together and they would debate things. And it earned us a nickname, People of the Word because of our single-minded devotion to the Bible, for our, because of our attention to the Bible and our recognition of the Bible as the only authority in our lives. I kind of wonder if that, um, if that nickname was earned, maybe not because they were impressed with our knowledge, but maybe because they were frustrated <laughs> with our knowledge. Because every time there was a debate, the Christian church guys, the restoration movement guys would always go back and say, but the Bible says, and they would take whatever they believed directly from the Bible. So why do we do it like that? Why the emphasis on the Bible 
to the exclusion of all other authorities. Because you have to admit, there have been some wonderful things written about the Christian faith over the last 2,000 years. There have been some great opinions, some wonderful thoughts, some, some very good decrees that were in place, and some creeds and, and other things that have been given to us. But when we go back to the New Testament, when we go back to that first expression of faith, that first expression of the Christian community that we have in Acts chapter 2, what do we find? Do you remember? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship and prayer. There's a uniqueness to the message, and there's a uniqueness to the claims that this book makes about itself. And, and we need to give that some attention. So I want you to turn with me today to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at the entire chapter. And if you're looking in those books that we provide, the Bibles that we provide there in the pews, you're going to find this on page 996. You have to realize that when these books were first written, they were a collection of letters that were put together. They did not have chapters or verse numbers. Those all came much, much later and helps us to get organized, helps us to find our place a little bit. The chapter numbers are the big numbers. The verse numbers are the little numbers. We're going to begin in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. I want to read for you verses 1 through 9 to start with. Paul writes this to his friend Timothy. He says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. I want to stop right there. Paul says that this will happen in the last days. <laughs> How many of you are sitting there going, wow, he got that right? <laughs> I, I kind of think that just about every generation, though, has looked at that and thought, that's us. He's talking about us. Especially when you get to that disobedient to parents part, right? That's when you see that and you're like, yeah, that's, I know kids like that. That's exactly right. You look on down into verse 10. And Paul says to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Paul sets himself apart. He sets his life and his example as the antidote for all the things that are wrong in this world, all the things that are wrong in these last days. If you remember Acts chapter 2, again, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. The people listed in verses 1 through 9, they have no such devotion. They don't have that anchor. They don't have that tether that holds their lives together, that holds them to God, nothing to hold them to the life and godliness that we have been called 
to embrace. And so Paul goes on and he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The sacred writings right there in your hand. The sacred writings right there on your tablets, right there accessible to you through the Word of God. Access, you, know, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And listen to what he says in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. What Paul is telling us is, Scripture is a tether. It's an anchor. It's a tether that keeps us from being tossed around and blown here and there and running after all sorts of fruitless pursuits. Scripture provides a point of connection to God. Provides us with a point of connection to God. I want you to understand that there is, there is something entirely unique about this book. The claims that this book makes about itself. There is no other book in the world that makes the claims that this book makes. You know, there, there are other religions, there are other belief systems, and they have their own books, right? You're, you're familiar with some of those, but none of those books make the same claim as the Bible. Those books will be the words of the prophet, the words of the teacher, the words of the master. None of them claim to be the word of God, except this book right here. Now, no other belief system no other religion has a God that speaks to his people through the written word. Now you realize that very knowledge right there, that very fact changed the course of civilization. That's why we have advances in, in literature. That's why, we have, that's why we have scholarship. That's why people learn to read. Because God would speak to them through his word. It propelled education. It propelled learning. And it makes this book a holy unique experience for you something that you cannot take lightly paul starts out in verse 16 all scripture is breathed out by god some of your bibles say all scripture is god breathed and some of your bibles say all scripture is inspired this is the only time that this phrase breathed out by god is used in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament. The only time that phrase is used is right here, and the only thing it is ever used about is Scripture. Sometimes we translate it inspired, and that's an okay translation. You know, inspired means to, to breathe in. When we, when we spire, <laughs> when, we, when we breathe, you know, we, 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 we inspire, we, we perspire. If you go outside right now, you're going to perspire. Um, <laughs> this last week, we had a uh, package of uh, lunch meat in the refrigerator back here. 
that had been left from VBS. It was a package of turkey. Uh, so it's this, you know, sliced up turkey. And it was still in the package. It had never been opened. And I went back there to get a drink one day this last week, and I looked at it, and it had swollen up. And, like, you know, there was all this air in there. And you know what it had done? It had expired, right? It had breathed out. And it was done. And I said to Diana, did, did you see that? She said, I saw it. I was like, I think it's a turkey bomb. You know, it's, it's going to explode on it. If we're, not, if we're not careful, it's going to explode on it. So it had expired and it had breathed its last. And so this idea of inspired means that God has breathed into it. And sometimes, you know, we translate it expired. I got to say, that's a very weak translation. It's a very weak understanding. And it promotes some very weak understanding about the Bible. I've had conversations with Christians, Christians from different faith systems, Christians with, you know, from different churches. I've had conversations that go something like this. They will tell me the Bible is inspired, just like Shakespeare is inspired, just like Plato is inspired. <clears throat> I had one man, more than one man, if I'm perfectly honest, tell me that there is absolutely nothing different about the Bible than any other book. It's inspired just like everything else. That's not true. i, I got to say that Shakespeare, when taken in its right setting and properly understood, can be inspiring, and Plato can be inspiring, but there is no other book that makes the claim to be breathed out by God, that there is nothing else that is like that. And when we, say, when we just say inspired, we also we can get ourselves in trouble as, as preachers, as maybe even performers, as, as Christian singers, as, as Christian writers. We can get ourselves in trouble because people every now and then say, well, that message or that song was inspiring. And we, we put that message or that song on the same level as Scripture. And we have no right to do that. You know, I, I might think that, you know, God kind of prompted me in a certain way, but there is no, I have no right to use that term that is exclusively used of the Bible. The Bible is breathed out by God. There is nothing else that is breathed out by God. Or is there? You know, I said in the New Testament, that word is never, that phrase is never used of anything else. It's only used here. And it's only used of the Bible, breathed out by God. If you go back a little further, if you go like all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and we have the story of the creation of man, and, and God forms Adam. God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground, right? Remember that? Forms him from the, the dust of the ground. And then what does God do to Adam? It says that God breathed into his nostrils. God inspired, God breathed the breath of life into Adam. And that's a wholly unique claim in the creation account. God did not inspire dogs. Uh, God did not inspire cats. God did not inspire fish or birds or anything else. There is nothing else in the whole story of creation that has that claim that God breathed the breath of life into anything else other than man. So Adam and Eve enjoy this relationship with God where they, they know God. God knows them. They're in relationship with Him. And then the fall comes and we sin and something is lost in that relationship. That connection, that point of connection with God is, is lost. And at that point in our history, the rest of, of human history 
is a story of what? I'll tell you what the rest of human history is a story of after, after we lost that. The rest of human history is a story of us being lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That's the story of humanity from the fall on because we lost that point of connection. But the unique claim of this book is that just like us, just like us in our creation, in our original state, this book connects us to God. This book completes us and provides us with a connection to our Creator. The Bible is that point of connection to God. That's important. We need that. But as Paul continues to describe the unique nature of this book, he shows us that it's also a point of connection to our transformation to who God wants us to be, who he calls us to be. Several years ago, back in the old building, in fact, uh, we had a young lady who was attending church here. And uh, she'd come for a while, and not for very long, but she'd been there. She was fun to preach to. Some of you people are fun to preach to. You're fun to preach to. You know, as you smile at me, and you interact, and I can tell you're following along, you know, I see your eyes are open, and that's great. You know, I, I really enjoy that. And, and so she was fun to preach to, because she'd smile and respond really well. And one day after church, she came up to me and she said, you got some time this afternoon? I said, yeah, I got some time. She said, I'd like to get together and talk. I have a few things I'd ask you about. Said, okay, great. So her and her boyfriend came and they, they wanted to talk to me. And we got to talking. And she came from a different faith background. Her, her background was in uh, the Reformed Church, the, the Reformation, okay? So different backgrounds, some different expectations from what church is about and, and how things go. And, and she said, um, the way you preach is different from the way the, the pastor at, at my home church preaches. And I thought, well, that's, that's not surprising, you know. I'm different. Um, and I said, yeah, okay, what, what, what do you say? She says, well, our preacher tells us what to do. <laughs> and what you do is you seem to just read the Bible to us and tell us what it says, and then you seem to expect that we're going to figure that out on our own. And I yeah, <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's what I do. That's, that's how it works. And like, well, she really wanted to be told what to do. She wanted someone to stand up here and tell her what was right and tell her what was wrong and tell her what was expected of her and tell her how to do it. Now, I think about you guys, and I think there's no way you would put up with that for me. There's no way that you would let me do that and say, well, here's the law according to Brett. You know, I'm going to tell you exactly what it's all about. And you wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't expect you to, to listen to something like that. And, she wasn't comfortable with that. She no longer attends here, and that's okay. You know, you didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. It, it just wasn't the background that she had. And the reality is, in, in her background, Scripture did not carry as much authority as the clergy. The, the clergy was expected to read the Scripture and then tell the people what to do. They weren't supposed to read it for themselves. I can't do that to you. See, the, the problem with that is by, by themselves, my words have no power over you. My words have no power to, to change you, to, to transform you. If I tell you what you're doing wrong and what you ought to be doing to do it right by my own authority, what can I do for you with that? What can my authority 
separate of Scripture do? There's, there's a connection in this passage. All Scripture is breathed out by God. We got that, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God. And therefore, because all Scripture is breathed out by God, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. My words, apart from Scripture, are not profitable for you. They're not useful. I do not carry the authority in your life that this book should. I do not carry the relationship in my life that the Word of God should. This book is God-breathed, and so are you. There's a connection. My job is to connect you to the words in this book. In Hebrews, it's put this way. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. On my own, and you on your own, all of us, we can say some pretty cutting things from time to time, can't we? We can make some pretty cutting remarks. If we're not careful, and we are, we are seldom careful, if we're not careful, we can destroy people with our words. We can tear people down with our words, and, and we often do. It's something we have to watch. We, we hurt people. We cut deep. But nothing compares to the way the Word, the word of God can cut you. Nothing comes close to the way you can be cut by the Word of God. Of God. It can cut you apart. It can cut the cancer of sin and, and self out. It can cut you deep. But the difference is, once it has cut you, it can put you back together again. It can put you back together. Verse 16, for all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness some of those things hurt who am i kidding they all hurt (laughs) they can all hurt a lot reproof some of your bibles say rebuking that hurts correction uh rebuking is is to convict someone of sin scripture does that correction we don't like that we don't like to be corrected we don't like someone to correct us but it literally means to put you back on the right path you know you've You've gone off on the wrong road here. You're, you're, taking the wrong, you're taking a detour and you've made a wrong choice. And so correction means that I'm going to help you get back onto the right path. And all Scripture is useful for correction. It means to restore you to where you were intended to go. And the point is training in righteousness so that you will be the person that God intended for you to be when He first, when he first breathed that life into us. There's a warning here, though. If you look at Hebrews chapter 4, and the warning is that the Word of God is living and active. Living and active. And I have to warn you about this. If you're confronted with the Word of God, if you're confronted with something that you're doing that's not in line with that Word, it is not going to let go of you. Just imagine a big dog that's got you by the leg. (laughs) It's not going to let go, and it is going to hurt. And there's no way you're going to get away from it. 
it's going to hold on and it's going to start cutting. And sometimes that is very, very uncomfortable. And I have had conversations with people who have said, I don't know what's wrong with my life. I don't know why this isn't working out. I don't know why I'm not at peace. And I've had to take them to the Word and I have to say, well, the Word of God says this. And sometimes it's a matter of disobedience on their part. And sometimes it's a matter of something they didn't even know they needed to be obedient to. And every now and then the reaction is, well, I don't want to do that yet. <laughs> I don't want to do that yet. I, I've, I've got my own thing, and, and God will forgive me, and you know, God, will, God will work with me on this. And, and maybe at some point, at some point in my life, God will speak directly to me and correct me about this. I am waiting for a voice from God. I'm waiting for Him to correct me. And I have to say, the Word of God is living and active. If you are waiting for a voice from heaven, here it is. If you are confronted that you're not doing something that should be doing, or that you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing, consider it the voice of God. It is not going to let go of you. It is not going to give up on you. It is going to cut you. It's going to rip you apart. Soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it is going to mess you up. But then it's going to put you back together again. And it's going to restore you. It's going to put you back on that path. But it's not going to let you go until it's done its job. And the reality is, that might hurt. Who am I kidding? <laughs> it will hurt. But in the end, the promise is restoration. God is going to put us back on the path to which he has called us. So we see that the, the scriptures are not just a point of connection to God and not just a point of connection with our transformation, but the scriptures are a point of connection to our calling, who God has called us to be and what God has called us to do. You talk to people outside the church, especially in this current generation, and they have one constant complaint. And that is that they've seen the Bible used as a weapon against them. Have you seen that done? The Bible uses a weapon against other people. A weapon to tell them what they're doing wrong. And they feel like they have been beaten over the head with the Scripture and told what you're doing is wrong. And you know what? They have. <laughs> We've done that before. And that's wrong. We've used the Bible to defend some very horrible attitudes on our part. In the, in the process of trying to point people, uh, point out their sin, we have used the Bible to defend some very horrible actions and attitudes on our part, and that is wrong. God did not breathe life into this book to destroy people. God is a creator, right? He breathed life into this book to create something new in them, to bring them back on that path, to recreate to call us to him. And so Peter's, or Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God and woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Competent and equipped for every good work. That's not about tearing people down, is it? It's not about leaving people broken, is it? 
It's about restoring them. It's about putting them together. It's about putting all the pieces together and finally making us useful. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? I've read it many, many times. We've gone back to it week after week, over and over again. We've used it so many times this year. For we are His workmanship. We are God's masterpiece. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk on them, walk in them. How do I know what God created me for? What do I know what good works I'm supposed to do? I would say we start here. When we start here, we find that we are competent. <laughs> we find that we are complete, that we are equipped. That, that word equipped there that he uses in, in verse, uh, verse 17. Competent and equipped. It means that we are able to meet all demands that are placed on us when we take it back to the word. And here's what we can't miss. There's an incredible promise when we start with the Word of God. There's an incredible promise when we build upon the Word. This is, this is breathed out by God. This is breathed out by God. This is filled with His Spirit. This is filled with His being. It is filled with His energy. When you let this guide you, when you let it guide your actions, when you let it guide your works, can your works fail if you let this guide you? I'm not going to say you're not going to maybe misunderstand a few things here and there. I'm not going to say that it's not going to take maybe some trial and error to find that right path, to find exactly what he's calling you to. But without this, without the Word of God, you are guaranteed to fail. You cannot do it without this. This is the source of strength we have. This is the source of competence that we have. This is the source of equipping that we have. If you do it with the Word... You will find strength, you will find purpose, you will find exactly what you need to serve. By its own testimony, the Word of God connects us to God Himself. It is breathed out by God. It connects us with who we can be. It teaches us, it corrects us, it rebukes us, it trains us in righteousness, and it connects us to our calling to serve. It makes us competent. It makes us complete. It makes us equipped to do every good work. There is nothing else I can offer you that has that promise. There's nothing I can say to you on my own that has that kind of power, that has that kind of potential, that has that kind of purpose. And so I find that we have no choice but to stand on Scripture. No book but the Bible. No creed but Christ. And where Scripture speaks... We speak, and where Scripture is silent, we are silent. That's hard. <laughs> and that requires a lot of commitment on our part. And there's a couple of dangers we have to watch out for, because if we really believe that, if we really believe that there's something unique about this Word, we have to watch a couple of things. There's a couple of dangers. First of all, we have to watch our opinions. We have to be really careful about our opinions. We have to be aware of what is an opinion, or... Or what is a preference? Let's not say opinion. Let's say preferences. We have to be aware of our preferences. You know, and we say things like, well, I don't like it when we do this. You know, that's, that's a preference that we have. And, and we have to recognize that that's, that's a preference. But what does the Bible say? We're going to need to do a little digging sometimes. Because our opinion, our preferences, should not trump the Word of God. Whether that's an opinion about our beliefs, or an opinion about our practices... Or whether that's an opinion, and this is the hard one, whether that's an opinion about 
someone else. An opinion that we hold about other people. I have to watch that sometimes. I don't know about you guys, but I have to watch my opinions about other people sometimes. Because sometimes, sometimes I have a low opinion of people. Some people, not all people. And every now and then I have to stop and remind myself that this book says that everyone that I encounter has an eternal purpose. And there is no one that I encounter that God loves less than me, no matter what they've done, no matter how they've lived their life. There is no one that I encounter that God loves any less than me. And God, no matter what I do, God does not love me any more than anyone else. I have to remember that. I have to keep that in mind. I have to keep my opinions in check. Every person that I encounter is someone who can be competent, someone who can be equipped to do good works which God prepared before the foundation of this world for them to do. I have to recognize that. One other danger that we have to watch are traditions. We have to be careful about our traditions. And we have to realize that saying, well, that's how we all, we've always done it, is not the same thing as saying, well, the Bible says. And we have to recognize the difference between those things and that there's sometimes that there are things that are, that are traditions and we might have to let them go. We have to reexamine why we do those things. And that's scary because we love our traditions. But our traditions, no matter how dear they are, they do not carry life-changing power. Traditions do not carry the promise that they are breathed out by God. And holding on to them will not give us any more strength, will not give us any more ability to do the will of God, will not give us the ability to do those good works. They don't carry any life-changing, life-affirming promise like, like this book. And it might surprise us. It might surprise us what God could do if we let go of some of those traditions and allowed his word to speak to us about other stuff. Hold on to it. Some traditions I like. I like the old songs. Anyone here like old songs? You know, I, I like the new songs too. I love the way we sing our new songs. I love the way we sing our old songs. I love Wednesday Night Live. You know, you come on Wednesday night, you're going to learn some new songs. We might have a baptism this Wednesday night too, by the way. We might have another one. So I think we're going to combine baptism and the cold water challenge. And <laughs> I want to do, no, I don't want to do that. Anyway, keep that in mind, Danny, when you fill it up. Get a lot of ice. So we're going to do it, up, do it both at once, get it over with. Um, <laughs> that is something to think about, isn't it? Anyway, I love the new songs that we sing on, uh, on Wednesday nights. Uh, you know, I love the, the, the new energy that's there. And the Bible says it's a command. We've got to sing a new song, you know. We've got to sing those new songs. But I also love these old songs. I love to stop and think that there are some songs that we sing that from the time this was brand new, when it still, when it still had that new book smell, when it was still brand new, that there are some songs that we still sing that were just as powerful those people. Maybe they were new to them too. They were powerful to them and they're powerful to us. I love to stop and think that there are generations that have been faithful, not just because of holding on to this, but because of standing on some of those songs that find their basis in the Word, because of 
those promises that they've stood on. And, and if the Lord tarries, that there are generations that will come after us who will also hold to those same songs and find that same comfort and that same peace. There's tremendous hope in realizing God has not abandoned us. God has not left us to our own devices. And thankfully, He has not left us to our own opinions. He's not left us to our own preferences. He's not left us to our traditions. He's given us His Word. And when we stand on His Word, we have that promise of of the firmness of that foundation. We have the promise of His presence. We have the promise uh, uh, that He is breathing that life into us and that He's going to do something amazing, something wonderful with us. Let's stand on His promise as we stand together and sing this morning.